Unearthing Paranormalcy is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange Welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. I'm Jen. And if you follow our Facebook group, you saw that we went live to cemeteries today. Um, it was pretty fun. Yeah, no spooky ookies. No spooky ookies. Some weird feelings. The first one. Yeah, yeah like feelings of like dread feelings of like get the fuck out of here is basically what i kept getting yeah. um we didn't stay that that one long because it was just kind of a weird feeling the whole time we were there second one felt comfortable and i kind of was sad to leave um Aww. but check out our facebook group and you can watch those live videos as we go through now one thing that was really funny that happened at the blanchard cemetery so we're already on edge because it doesn't feel quite right and i do the first facebook live i put the phone down and as we're walking around we hear a woman say like hi and it's like what the fuck and we start looking around like there's nobody else here what the hell is that and then it starts talking again and i realize that it's me and that the facebook video that i had just posted was now playing back on my phone <laughs> oh yeah you just hear this really like Hi. <laughs> like, what the hell was that? That was really loud. <laughs> uh, there is nobody around here. Yeah. So we did creep ourselves out a little bit there, but um Eli update, he's home. So he's home. Still has some rehab to go, but he is out of the hospital and he is home and he is alive and he is healing. So that's according to him, he's not going back. Well good, because uh, he's not supposed to. Yeah, we swung by his house and he was watching the Da Vinci Code too. Yes. So he watched. He, he tricked me into watching Annabelle last night. So. Oh, he did. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like he was looking through stuff to watch, and I was over there just hanging out with him. And I got up to go to the bathroom, and I came back, and I'm like, "Oh, what, what, what horror movie is this?" And he says, "Oh my god, you fucking bastard!" <laughs> he goes, "I'm an asshole. I know." <laughs> That's awesome. So let's go ahead and play a trailer from the Green Mushroom Podcast Network before we get started on today's episode. So here you go. Here is a promo for Smuts Up. Smuts Up. It's the sex positive comedy show your parents forgot to warn you about. I will be a delightful host, Jeep Weird, and with me are my three very sexy friends. 
I'm Captain Spanx, dropping anchor. It's a spanker. Hi, I'm Raven Dunnigan, and I'm about to eat 16 feet of nerd rope. And I'm Luxa, and that is all you get to know about me. <laughs> Join us for a ride full of twists and turns as we explore the rabbit hole that is human sexuality. I, Smuts Up Crew, would like to propose. Oh my god, he's proposing. A question. Get down on your fucking knees. (laughs) If you're curious about expanding your horizons or getting more comfortable in your own skin, then the Smuts Up podcast is for you. Or maybe you're just a horny nerd or a person who enjoys outdated references. The Smuts Up podcast is fun for the whole step family. I'm going to say the B word. (laughs) Butthole sunning. If you were to put a hot dog in it, is it a sandwich? I don't know. Is a bread dilder with a hot dog inside it a sandwich? Write to us at smutsup69 at gmail.com and let us know what you think about that. Available on your favorite podcast apps. I put a D20 in my mouth. Nailed it. So with this uh, gaming network we're going to launch, are we going to put any D20s in our mouths? (laughs) (laughs) I put a D20 in my mouth. Maybe, maybe. Oh. The dog hears something. So this week, we're coming at you with some true crime. And Dave's got it all written up over there, what he's going to say. So I'll just let him do the intro. So Dave? Happy spooky season. Spooky season. If you're not into true crime, please join us next episode where we will be reading gothic horror fiction. Yes. (laughs) Though it is attributed to many people. I don't know the original source of the quote. When I was a child, I was afraid of ghosts. As I grew up, I realized people are more scary. 100% the truth. Mm -hmm. And that's why we've kind of done a true crime episode every Halloween. Um, We did the candy, or the like... Yeah, the the murders, and yeah, like the Halloween murders and all of that. Because yeah, to me... Humans are far scarier than any cryptid or ghost or anything out there. So, yeah. If I have not scared you away yet, we will be discussing cruelty to animals, murder of victims as young as a few hours old, and countless other things that are probably not good for your psyche. For those still here, we find it therapeutic to use humor and dark humor at times while discussing very traumatic things. Angels of Death, also called Angels of Mercy, are a type of serial killer that typically works as a caregiver to the ill. They are often in a position of power over and then decide their victim is better off no longer suffering from the severe illness that is plaguing them. These Angels of Death use their knowledge to kill their victim. In some cases, this criminal behavior even escalates to targeting victims that have easily treated illnesses. Motivations for this type of criminal behavior is variable, but generally falls into one or more types of the following patterns, as defined by the Journal of... It's <laughs> <laughs> the Journal of... Fuck! <laughs> that sounds like a fun journal. <laughs> journal of fuck! Journal of fuck! Journal of fuck! Oh. But generally falls into one or more types of the following patterns as defined by the Journal of forensic sciences. That makes more sense. (laughs) (laughs) The mercy killer believes the victims are suffering or beyond help 
This belief may or may not be delusional. The sadistic uses their position as a way to exert power and control over helpless victims. The malignant hero shows a pattern wherein the subject endangers the victim's life in some way and then proceeds to quote-unquote save them. Some feign attempting resuscitation, all the while knowing their victim is already dead and beyond help. But hope, to be seen as selflessly making an effort. One example of this type was Richard Angelo, who would inject a patient with drugs, then rush into the room and attempt to save the patient so he could be seen as a hero to the victim's family. Angelo confessed to killing 25 patients. According to Dr. Ken Ken, who uses the term healthcare serial killers, categorizes them into the following groups. Thrill seekers. These are individuals who achieve a thrill from the act of killing. A thrill which they want to repeat over and over again. He's got thrills. They're multiplying. (laughs) Power-oriented. In this group, they kill to achieve a feeling of power and control. Dr. Harold Shipman is an example of a medical serial killer who falls within this category. In all honesty, these are like the weakest serial killers out there. They can't, like, when you, when you think about it in the sense of, they don't overpower their victims in any way, shape, or form. They're already targeting those who are weaker than them. Yeah. Like, yeah. Kind of a pussy a way to be a serial killer, honestly. That's the way they think they can get away with it. Gain-motivated. These individuals receive something from the act of killing. This may be relieving a burden by removing the patient from their care, or they may be able to steal money or belongings from the patient. Missionary killers. (laughs) (laughs) They do it on their back. Less common... (laughs) These are serial killers within healthcare who believe they are doing a good deed by getting rid of people who are immoral or unworthy in some way. The vigilante. Further to categorization by motive, studies have identified a number of character traits and behaviors, which may, when combined, be a warning sign for a potential medical serial killer. History of mental instability. Preference for night shifts or shifts with left staff and supervisors on duty. History of difficult personal relationships. A tendency to predict when a patient will die. Felt patients were a burden to them or an annoyance. Had a problem with substance misuse. Often moved from hospital to hospital. These angels of death in their role as medical professionals have killed their patients for monetary gain, a sense of sadistic pleasure, a belief they are easing the patient's pain, or because they can. At times, these killers claim the motives as euthanasia when it is not. The difference, according to John Field, is that a serial killer lacks a sense of compassion towards the patient, which is expected in situations of euthanasia. 
Most murders committed by nurses are performed by a lethal injection. According to studies and archives, the typical medical professional who murders kills two patients each month. Because of the methods these killers use, along with the knowledge of what won't raise suspicion during an autopsy, they are able to operate for years, and in some cases decades. One example of this is Harold Shipman, an English family doctor who would make it appear as though victims died of natural causes. He murdered at least 215 patients during a 23-year span that lasted from 1975 to 1998. Damn. He is expected of killing over 250, but was only convicted of 15. A number of medical murderers were involved in fraud, such as H.H. H. Holmes. The aforementioned Harold Shipman was convicted of prescription fraud and forgery and was fined 600 pounds during his career. British general practitioner John Botkin Adams was found guilty of 13 offenses of prescription fraud, lying on cremation forms, obstructing a police search, and failing to keep a dangerous drugs register. He was struck off the medical registrar in 1957 and reinstated in 1961. From 1946 to 1957, 163 of his patients died while in comas. 132 out of 310 total patients had left him money or items in their wills. He was tried for murder in 1957 and was acquitted. There was actually one, um, there's a show on Oxygen called License to Kill, and I've been watching it. And there was one lady on there, her name it was Denise something, I cannot remember what her last name was. But she actually was hired as a hospice nurse for this gentleman's wife. Well, she befriended him and eventually convinced him to give her power of attorney over him. His wife died. She somehow became the owner of his property and immediately sold it and was using his account and writing check after check for thousands of dollars and spending thousands of dollars and all of that. And uh, she even had people calling the man's daughter, disguising as him and also disguising their voice as his, quote, new wife that he'd run off to Vegas to marry. Oh, oh. Um, but yeah, all of it was just her trying to get some extra money. <coughs> that case is actually really sad because they actually never found his body. Hmm. But. French serial killer Marcel Petiot had no delusions of playing God or being an angel of mercy. He killed simply for money. During the Second World War, Petiot set up fake escape networks for Jews fleeing France. He was inoculating them against disease before they left, or so he claimed. In reality, he was injecting his victims with cyanide. When they died, he disposed of their bodies, but kept their possessions. Scary Fact According to a research study conducted at John Hopkins, 
Roughly 250,000 deaths are caused by medical error each year. Making it the third leading cause of death in the United States, if it was considered a cause of death. Wow. That's just behind cancer and heart disease. And people wonder why I don't like going to the doctor. I have to go to the doctor. (laughs) Well, you know, I've got lots of friends that are nurses and stuff like that. And they'll tell me all the time, don't go see that doctor. Don't go see that doctor. Yeah. Don't Mm -hmm. use that doctor. And just because they have so many malpractice cases against them and all of that. Yeah. Some of the more known angels of death are Beverly Allett, an English nurse who targeted children in the 1990s. Efren Salvador, a respiratory therapist, confessed to killing several patients. But since police had no evidence, when he recanted that confession, they had no evidence to convict. What's really interesting about that, that one's also one of the cases on um, the license to kill. Oh, that show from Oxygen? Yeah. um, One of the things that's really interesting about him is he he was killing these people by using a paralytic, basically, that paralyzes all the muscles in your body, including your lungs and your heart. And there is, at the time, there was no test to test the body if that drug had been used. And in order to catch him, to get enough evidence to convict him, because he he specifically said in his confession what he used, they actually called in a specialist who invented a test to test for this specific drug. Oh. And then what they did is they went back. They had like 122 cases that were suspicious. And so they went back and they took all the cases within the last two years and went through all the medical records. And anybody who was given that drug as a treatment came off the list. Because if they tested positive for it, then you couldn't say it was, you know, you, you couldn't tell whether or not he had done it. And then they exhumed, I think they exhumed 20 bodies. And of the 20 bodies, they found six people. Um, and they were able to convict him on that. And when they brought all this evidence to him, he, again, confessed. And they at, he had originally said that he had done it as mercy killings. That these people didn't stand a chance. That he was just helping them. Then when this other thing happened, they asked him again. They, they gave him the evidence and they said, okay, why are you doing this? And he said... It's because my workload was too heavy. He said when I would get stressed out and I couldn't, there weren't enough respiratory therapists on staff, he'd just take the patients out. So he didn't have to worry about them. Oh, man. And it was like, holy crap. Right now, think of how many nurses that are short. They're like The hospitals mm-hmm. are short. That would be horrible if it was just, oh, there's not enough people, so we're just going to start killing everybody off so we don't have to take care of them. I mean crazy yeah (laughs) (laughs) some other uh some other well-known ones are donald harvey an american orderly who used a wide array of methods to kill patients throughout the 1970s and 80s michael swango an american physician who poisoned patients as well as co-workers in the 1980s and 90s 
Orville Majors, an American nurse, whose co-workers got suspicious and uncovered he had been on duty for 130 out of 147 deaths between 1993 and 1995. Kristen Gilbert, an American nurse who targeted veterans in the 1990s. Daniela Poggiali, Poggi, Poggiali, Poggiali, uh, it's an Italian nurse who was accused of her involvement in around 93 killings and was sentenced to imprisonment for 30 years in March of two, 2016 for a murder offense. Charles Cullen, an American nurse who confessed to killing over 40 patients across nine hospitals in his 16 years. Criminologists suspect him of being responsible for over 400. Jesus Christ. <clears throat> My Ucky. You what? <laughs> My Ucky. Me Yucky Ishikawa. <laughs> A Japanese midwife working with a few different accomplices in the 1940s was convicted of a killing 103 newborn babies. She only served four years in prison. Wow. Before we get into more detail, I have a scary fact. <laughs> more scary than the episode? In 2017, homicide archivist Thomas Hargrove estimated that there are more than 2,000 serial killers currently at large. John Douglas, a former chief of the FBI's elite serial crime unit and author of Mindhunter, notes that, quote, A very conservative estimate is that there are between 25 and 50 active serial killers in the United States, unquote, at any given time. I was thinking about how drastically different these numbers were, and it caused me to think of how many people the FBI have listed as missing or killed in national parks, compared to how many the archivist David Pilates has. According to Thomas Hargrove's work, many towns and cities fail to report homicides to the Department of Justice offices that collect these records, which is why his database has 751,785 murders carried out since 1976. That's as of 2017. Wow. Which is about, I think it said three times higher than the FBI's. Yeah. And is the FBI counting cases like these? Uh, they're only counting what the Department of yeah. Justice catches or... Um, records all right let's talk about beverly allen she was born on october 4th 1968 and grew up in the uk village of corby Glen, and that's near grantham her father richard worked uh, in an off license and her mother as a school cleaner they got some interesting jobs in the UK because I don't know what either of those things are. <laughs> I would say a school cleaner would be a janitor. Yeah, I don't know what an off license is. Mm -mm. But she had two sisters and a brother. 
Alit attended Charles Reed Secondary Modern School and would often volunteer for babysitting jobs. She left school at the age of 16 to take a course in nursing at Gratham College. After this, she got a job at Gratham Ket Stephen Hospital in Lincolnshire as a state-enrolled nurse. On the 22nd of February, 1991, seven-week-old Liam Taylor was murdered after being admitted to the ward for a chest infection. Timothy Hartwick, an 11-year-old boy with cerebral palsy, was admitted to the ward following an epileptic seizure. He was murdered on the 5th of March, 1991. Kaylee Desmond, then 1-year-old, was admitted to the ward for a chest infection. Allie had attempted to murder her on the 8th of March, 1991, but the child was resuscitated and transferred to another hospital where she recovered. Paul Crampton, who was five months old, was admitted to the ward for a chest infection on the 20th of March, 1991. Al had attempted to murder him with an insulin overdose on three occasions the day before he was transferred to another hospital where he recovered. Bradley Gibson was five years old when he was admitted to the ward for pneumonia. He suffered two cardiac arrests on the 21st of March, 1991 due to Allid administering insulin overdoses. He was transferred to another hospital where he recovered. Michael Davidson, then six years old, was admitted to the ward for a post-operative care following an operation to remove an air rifle pellet that had been injured uh, in an accident. After being injected with insulin multiple times through uh, canola on his hand, he suffered from cyanosis and fell unconscious before being stabilized by other doctors on the ward. He later made a full recovery. Yik Hung Chan, also known as Henry, was two years old and admitted to the ward following a fall on the 21st of March, 1991. He suffered an oxygen desaturation attack before he was transferred to another hospital where he recovered. Becky Phillips was admitted to the ward for gastroenteritis on April 1st, 1991. The two-month-old was given an insulin overdose by Allet and died at home two days later, from what they initially thought was caught death. Katie Phillips, who was also two months old and Becky's twin, was admitted to the ward as a precaution following the death of her sister. She had to be resuscitated twice after unexplained apnoetic, apnoic episodes, which were later found to be caused by insulin and potassium overdoses. Following the second time that she stopped breathing, she was transferred to another hospital, but by this time she had suffered permanent brain damage, partial paralysis and partial blindness due to oxygen deprivation. Her parents had been so grateful for Alit's care of Becky that they asked her to be Katie's godmother. Good Lord. Medical staff became suspicious of the number of cardiac arrests on the children's ward and police were called in. You think? Then Claire Peck, 15 months old, 
was admitted to the ward following an asthma attack on the 22nd of April 1991. After being put on a ventilator, she was left alone in Allett's care for a short interval, during which time she went into cardiac arrest. She was resuscitated, but died after a second episode of cardiac arrest, again following a period where she was left alone with Allett. Police soon became aware that Allett was the only nurse on duty for all the attacks on the children, and she also had access to the drugs. Over a 59-day period, Allett attacked 13 children, four that died before she was brought up on charges of four counts of murder, 11 counts of attempted murder, and 11 counts of causing grievous bodily harm. Allett pled not guilty to all charges. On May 28, 1993, she was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to 13 concurrent terms of life imprisonment, which she is serving at Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire. In 1999, Katie Phillips was awarded £2.125 million by Lincolnshire Health Authority to pay for treatment and equipment for the rest of her life. Lincolnshire Health Authority did not accept liability, but did acknowledge that Katie was entitled to compensation. Allett's motives have never been explained. One theory says she showed symptoms of factitious disorder, also known as Munchausen syndrome. Did I say that right? No. Munchausen's. Munchausen's syndrome, which involves a pattern of abuse in which the perpetrator ascribes or physically falsifies illnesses in someone under their care to attract attention to themselves. That'd be Munchausen's by proxy. Yeah. 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 Um, there's a movie. On, I don't remember if it was Amazon or Hulu, um, about her mom that did that to her daughter, pretended like she had cancer and all that stuff. And oh, um, yeah. And then the daughter's boyfriend ended up murdering her. Yeah. Murdering the mother. Yeah. A lot, a lot of the cases that I watched and I've read on, that's actually one of the things is they have Munchausen's by proxy. And it, like, Munchausen's by or Munchausen's when it's you, it's you who's constantly sick and making up diseases and trying to get okay. attention and stuff. And then by proxy is when you make other people sick in order to get the attention. I thought that was just always called hypochondria. Uh, so Munchausen, it must be named after somebody. I'm sure it is. But Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the cases have been attributed to that. To where it's they get the attention because they're like they're the ones taking care of them. They're the ones that are saving, saving them, and which I guess makes more sense why, like, uh, Becky and Katie's parents would ask her to be Katie's godmother. Yeah, you know if they saw her as a savior, savior yeah. of her. All right, Donald Harvey was oh, well, a. This is a good one. <laughs> Donald Harvey was a ninth grade high school dropout and took a job as an orderly at the Marymount Hospital in London, Kentucky. Donald Harvey was 35 in 1987 when he became a person of interest in the death of a coma patient at Cincinnati's Drake Memorial Hospital, the hospital he worked at as an orderly. 
The autopsy showed that the patient John Powell had lethal amounts of cyanide in his system. Harvey became a person of interest when investigators learned he had been forced to resign from the Cincinnati VA hospital after he was caught stealing dead body parts for occult rituals. And I looked into this, and it was just more of that good old 1980s satanic panic stuff. Yeah. But Harvey was brought in for questioning, and he claimed he euthanized the patient with cyanide. Local news anchor at a station in Cincinnati took it upon himself to investigate Harvey further, and he uncovered Harvey may have been killing patients for 17 years when he started his job as an orderly at the age of 18. Harvey took a plea deal of life imprisonment in exchange for a confession to all his murders. He claimed to kill over 50, but law enforcement was only able to link 37 to him. Harvey claimed he killed out of empathy for the terminally ill, but also admitted he killed some people, including neighbors and his lover's father, out of anger. He used a wide array of methods, including arsenic, cyanide, insulin, suffocation, morphine, the insertion of coat hangers into catheters, and fluids tainted with hepatitis B and HIV. Yeah, like, he was an insanely jealous guy. So he was poisoning his boyfriend with arsenic to keep him sick so he couldn't go out with friends. And he couldn't go out and do things. When his his boyfriend was a... um, hairdresser and he was extremely jealous of the female hairdressers that worked with his boyfriend and when so when they would come over he would poison them because he didn't want them around like he was demented yeah his lover's and roommate's name was carl Howeller, and he actually killed his father with arsenic yeah Um, He poisoned two neighbors by putting hepatitis serum in a drink, but that neighbor survived. The other one he he poisoned with an arsenic pie, and she died. Um, He was putting AIDS into the soups and stuff that he would serve at dinner parties. hmm? And their salads and stuff like that. Now, the majority of his crimes took place at the Marymount Hospital, the Cincinnati VA Medical Hospital, and Cincinnati's Drake Memorial Hospital. And this all began at the Marymount Hospital in London, Kentucky. Uh, During the investigation conducted by Cincinnati news anchor Pat Minarson, several nurses at Drake reached out to him, saying that they had raised concerns with administrators upon noticing a spike in deaths while Harvey was employed there, but had been ordered to shut their mouths. Over the next several months, Minarson amassed enough evidence to air a half-hour special report detailing evidence that linked Harvey to at least 24 more murders in a four-year period. Harvey's coin-appointed lawyer, Bill Whalen, asked Harvey if he had killed anyone, to which Harvey estimated it could have been as many as 70. In order to save his client from the death penalty, Whalen set up a plea deal in exchange for a confession. Harvey admitted to killing 24. Harvey was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences. This plea agreement allowed prosecutors to seek the death penalty if more murders were discovered. 
The following November, Harvey pled guilty in Laurel County, Kentucky, to killing nine patients at Marymount in the 1970s. He was sentenced to life plus 20 years to run concurrent with the Ohio sentence. Ultimately, he was convicted of 37 murders, but he confessed to killing as many as 50. Donald Harvey was incarcerated in the Ohio prison system on October 26, 1987, and on March 28, 2007, he was found in his jail cell severely beaten, and he died on March 30, 2017. Over two years later, in 2019, James Elliott was charged with aggravated murder and other charges relating to the death of Donald Harvey. In September of 2019, Elliot received a sentence of life in prison after pleading guilty to killing Harvey. Uh, oh, on the License to Kill, or you probably find it on YouTube, his confession video is so freaking disturbing. Oh, I bet. <laughs> he is so nonchalant. He knows the room number, the bed number, the name and how he killed him. He kept a list of all of his victims in a picture or in a piece of paper behind a mirror in his bedroom. Yeah. And that was like a list of all of his victims. And he, like I said, he remembered exactly what floor they were on, what room they oh, were yeah. in, what bed they were in. He took impeccable notes. Oh, I yeah. don't know how they didn't figure, get justice for the other 13 victims. No, like, it was crazy how, and he's just so nonchalant about it. He's making jokes about it. And like Powell, Powell was actually improving. He was in a motorcycle accident. If, if this is the one that I'm thinking of, he was in a motorcycle accident. He had been yeah. in a coma and he was finally starting to improve. He, he um, had a trach and so he couldn't talk, but he was waking up. He could, you know, nod yes and no and have kind of like Eli was a few weeks ago. You know, have a conversation with yeses and nos. Um, and then just one night, his wife got a phone call saying he died. And she was talking about, in the um, License to Kill, she was talking about that night before they left. Um, he was very upset about something. And they couldn't figure out what it was. Like, they tried, you know, brushing his hair rubbing his feet, giving him what, like, try, because he can't talk and tell him what was wrong, but she said yeah. he was very upset and did not want them to leave that night. And then when they got the phone call that he died, she, you know, she felt guilty. She's like, was he trying to tell us that he know that this was going to happen? You know, things like that. And, I don't know, it's, uh, Harvey is so interesting because of, just, he looks like he could be Bundy's twin. Or at least little brother. Like, he looks like Ted Bundy. Yeah. In fact, Dave showed me his picture. He's like, who do you think this is? And I was like, is that Bundy? And he said, no, that's Harvey. <laughs> and I was like, wow. So, yeah. Very demented man. Very much so. You guys are just reassuring my uh, hate and fear of hospitals and doctors. <laughs> well, let me tell you about Orful Majors. <laughs> Let me tell you about my best friend. No, he wasn't my best friend, but he was one of the most popular nurses at Vermilion County Hospital in Indiana. His co-workers would joke about the morbid coincidence that more people died during his shifts than anyone else's. 
<laughs> Remember when 12 people died last week on your shift? <laughs> I've had one. <laughs> Sucks Wait. to be you. But one nurse, Don Styrick, took it a little serious and discovered that between 1993 and 1995, there were 147 patient deaths and, one her- hun- and 130 of them occurred on shifts Major was on. In 1992, the prior average number of deaths at this facility was 26. This hospital only had 56 beds and 4 ICU beds. So 147 was one out of three patients admitted during that two-year span. Good Lord. Circumstances surrounding the deaths began raising more suspicion. Some patients died from an erratic heartbeat following respiratory arrest, which I've been told is reverse of the normal pattern. Other patients died of conditions they were not admitted with or would take a sharp downturn despite being otherwise healthy. Styrick contacted the Indiana State Police and Majors was suspended pending investigation. The Indiana State Nursing Board suspended Major's license for five years after it determined he had exceeded his authority by giving emergency drugs and working in an ICU without a doctor. Investigators also determined that when Major's was on duty, there was an average of one death every 23 hours. When he was off duty, the death rate dropped to one every 23 days. After being fired from VCH and suspended as a nurse, Majors began running a pet store in Linton. He hired a lawyer and began appearing on talk shows, proclaiming his innocence. What this did was cause several relatives of patients who died at VCH to contact the state police to report suspicious behavior on Majors' part. They recalled their loved ones coded or died within minutes of Majors giving them injections. The state police medical team noticed several patients' heart patterns widening around the times Majors was on duty. They suspected there were only three reasons for this. A potassium overdose, a sudden heart attack, or a large clot in the lung. State officials began exhuming 15 patients of September of 1995 who had both been witnessed getting injections and had heart-widening heart patterns near the time of death. None of the bodies showed signs of heart attack or clotting in the lung. So police obtained a search warrant and discovered numerous vials of potassium chloride and epinephrine that could be traced back to the hospital in Major's residence. Following a two-year investigation, Majors was arrested in December 1997 and charged with seven murders, even though investigators believed he was responsible for 100 to 130. Prosecutors said they did this, so it would not overwhelm the jury. A total of 79 witnesses were called in his 1999 trial. On October 17, 1999, Majors was convicted for six out of the seven murders. He was sentenced to 60 years. He spent time at Indiana State Prison in Michigan City. And on September 24, 2017, 
while arguing with a correction officer. He died of heart failure. Huh. Um. What's really interesting is a lot of them did that back then, too. They go to the media and claim their innocence. And um, in the case of Efren, he actually had people so pissed off at the hospital and the police, or actually the police more than the hospital, for interrogating him, because he's the one who gave a false confession. And um, so much so that the lead investigator on it he would walk down the hallways of the hospital and the doctors would say, are we going to keep wasting the taxpayers money on this thing? And he said even his own mother chewed him out for doing this because Efren looked like a kind hearted person. Like he, he looked innocent. He sounded innocent. He, you know, he had everybody convinced that he had only confessed because he was very depressed and he wanted to commit suicide so he confessed to all these murders so that he could get the death penalty and the state could kill him because he didn't have the the guts to do it himself oh. is what he told everybody in the media but that was a common thing they'd go to the media oh yeah and it was like i guess they go like on dr phil and shit it was like <laughs> uh Geraldo and donahue and Hell you know yeah. All that stuff. They'd gone there and Sally proclaim Jesse their and innocence, and it just made them look more guilty most of the time. But Okay, before we move on to Dave's next one, one of the ones you mentioned before, Dr. Swingo. This guy's story is ridiculously stupid. Okay, so this guy, he's going to medical school at Ohio State, and he's doing his inter- internship there at Ohio State. And... He starts getting investigated because there's all these deaths when he's of his patients. And Ohio State, not wanting it to get out that he was doing all these things, they said, okay, you're going to pass your internship and you can move on to residency, but you can't do it here. Jeez, this is like the worst case of failing upward I've ever heard of. He's like, but we'll write you a glowing recommendation for whatever place you want to go for your residency so he goes he gets his residency gets his degree then he at some point he becomes a um paramedic and he's working you know at another hospital as a paramedic and all the guys come in one day and there's donuts on the table they eat it eat the donuts and all of them immediately get sick vomiting and you know, all this stuff. So they call in the health department to come and check their water supply. The health department goes to the donut place and checks their stuff, make sure everything's good there. They can't find out anything. One day, these two guys were there. It never occurred to them to look into the guy that brought the donuts in. Yeah, there were no donuts left for them to, you know, check out what was wrong with them. Uh, So then they, there's two guys that were working or two two paramedics that are there. They make some tea. They pour them into their cups, but then they get called out on a call, so they leave their cups there. They go out on the call. They come back. One guy who was a diabetic took a swig of it, and he said, ooh, this is really sweet. Taste this. And the other guy took a swig of it, and he's like, yeah, there's something in this. Luckily, they had like the forward thought process to go ahead and they put it in a container to have it tested. 
because they knew something oh, was off about super it. Super smart. Super smart. Then the guy, uh, Swingo, and his partner were on duty at a football game, a high school football game. And he, Swingo's like, hey, I'm going to go get a soda at the, uh, the concession stand. Do you want anything? And his partner's like, yeah, sure. A Coke. And so he brings him back a Coke. The guy takes, you know, sits there and drinks his Coke and then immediately starts vomiting again. And he's now starting to get a little suspicious, you know, because now he's been sick a couple of times. Everybody in the, the, I want to say firehouse, but they're not firehouse because they're paramedics. But everybody in the station is getting sick. And so the guys go and have the tea tested, find out there's arsenic in the tea. And the arsenic came from ant poison. Well, the only person who's not getting sick is Swingo. Swingo. Yeah. So they go to his apartment and they find tons of this ant killer. Well, they can't prove that he was trying to kill them, so they can't charge him with attempted homicide. So they end up charging him with aggravated assault. His defense on this was that no, there were just a lot of ants in his apartment, so he bought all this ant poison. He's like, he's like, no, I have a reasonable explanation for having 250 ant traps in here. <laughs> Here's the other thing. The ants that were found in his apartment, because, of course, they sent an exterminator to go and check and see. The ants that were in his apartment were not native to Ohio, but they were actually native from Florida. He had just come back from a trip seeing his mother in Florida the week before. And he had brought back the ants from Florida to cover his tracks oh. on this thing. So anyway, he gets convicted of the aggravated assault. And he's, I think it's five years is what he's sentenced. And I think he gets released in like 10 months. Yeah. And so he's like, okay, I'm... He, he, he kind of leaves and disappears for a little bit. He finds a way to get around the whole background check thing by applying for the VA hospital. And at the time, they weren't doing background checks. I don't know if they do now. They didn't do background checks, but you filled out an application and you would say, have you been convicted of a felony? He marked no, because they're not going to check it, right? Well, yeah. So he's working at the VA hospital. All of these people start dying. And so they start investigating him. He gets wind that they're investigating him. So then he flies to Africa. Because Africa is hurting for doctors. They want lots of doctors, especially American trained doctors. Like, you know. So he's working in Africa now. And all of a sudden, all these patients start dying at the clinic in Africa. And so they start investigating him there. So he leaves Africa and comes back to the United States. He gets arrested in the airport as soon as he gets back. But, again, they don't have any evidence that he was actually killing people. But they were able to hold him for a little bit because of the fact that he had signed the, the VA application saying he didn't have a felony, which is then a felony because he lied on that application. So, uh. they're holding him there. They can't hold him long. They release him. He goes to New York and oh does the God. whole thing over again. Yeah. And I think it was finally when he was in New York, they finally were able to like 
get the evidence to prove that he was killing people. But I mean, like seriously, this dude was. Just, it was like the movie Catch Me If You Can. Oh, you yeah. know where he's just constantly move, like it was ridiculous what he was getting away with, and yeah, he's another interesting one, and it and the fact that like you know how I said Ohio State just didn't want that that yeah. if, that get out there. That's what happens in a lot of these cases. And that's why these people are able to move from hospital to hospital and kill so many people. It's because the hospitals don't want the bad publicity of having a serial killer working in their hospital. Yeah. You know? So they try to keep it hush hush. And that was one thing with Harvey is they were trying to keep it hush hush. And that journalist broke the story. I mean, so much hush-hush that even the other nurses in the hospital were telling people that something's wrong here and they were going ignored and told to just be quiet about it. Yeah. And so they actually all called that journalist and set up a meeting with him. And they were going, when they would go to the hospital, they would pull records and bring them back to him so that he could see, you know, start collecting all his evidence in Harvey's case. And that was one of the biggest problems that was going on at this time was that the hospitals didn't want anybody to know. So they weren't saying shit about it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the police finally get wind of it from usually a patient or a family of a patient yeah. or a coworker of some, something that somebody says something to the police. Once the police get involved, then it usually works its way out. But Sometimes the police don't even get notified that something's happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I just thought Swango was an interesting... Yeah, that one's crazy that he was able to <laughs> bounce around for yeah. as long as he did. Yeah. <laughs> just keep moving. All right. Kristen Gilbert was born, Kristen Heather Strickland, in Fall River, Massachusetts, on November 13th, 1967. Her parents were an electronics executive and a part-time teacher. In her teenage years, Kristen developed a habit of lying and faking suicide attempts to manipulate people. She graduated from high school in Groton, Massachusetts. And in 1986, she enrolled at Bridgewater State College in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. She was ordered into a psychiatric hospital after a fake suicide attempt. Then she went to some other schools and became a registered nurse in 1988. Later in that year, she married Glenn Gilbert. Kristen got a job working at the Veteran Affairs Medical Center in Northampton in 1989. She was featured in the magazine VA Practitioner in April of 1990. She got along well with her co-workers who jokingly called her the Angel of Death due to the high number of deaths on Gilbert's shifts. In 1996, an investigation began after three nurses reported concerns about an increase in cardiac arrest deaths, along with a decrease in the epinephrine supply. Kristen tried to derail the investigation by phoning in a bomb threat. She left the hospital amid the investigation, In the fall of 96, she checked herself into psychiatric hospital seven times, staying anywhere from one to ten days each time. 
In January of 1998, Gilbert stood trial for the bomb threat she placed back in 96 and was convicted. VA hospital staff speculated that Kristen may have been responsible for 350 or more deaths and over 300 medical emergencies. The prosecutor in her case, Assistant U.S. Attorney William M. Welch II, asserted Kristen Gilbert would use these medical emergencies to gain the attention of Perel, a VA police officer, and her boyfriend at the time. You see, hospital regulation require that hospital police be present for any medical emergency. Peralt testified against her, claiming she confessed at least one murder to him over the phone while she was in a psychiatric ward. Gilbert's defense attorney, uh, David P. Hoos, claimed reasonable doubt based on lack of direct evidence. William Botell, a psychiatrist who was at Northampton VA Medical Center, theorized that Kristen created emergency medical crisis situations to display her proficiency with nursing. All the trial prosecutors said she used a kitchen knife in an assault in Greenfield, Massachusetts in, in January or February 1998. Prosecutors said she removed a patient's breathing tube on January 30, 1994, causing a medical emergency. She tried to poison a person twice in November of 1995. Prosecutors said that Gilbert abandoned a patient undergoing a cardiac arrest on November 9, 1995. She forced an untrained colleague to use cardiac defibrillation paddles on a patient during a medical emergency on November 17, 1995. She tried to poison a patient on January 28, 1996. She threatened the life of at least one person verbally and physically in July of 1996. When she was working as a home health aide uh, before becoming a registered nurse, she scalded a mentally handicapped child with hot bath water. On March 14, 2001, Gilbert was convicted on three counts of first-degree murder, one account of second-degree murder, and two counts of attempted murder. While Massachusetts did not have a death penalty at the time, the federal government did, and the crimes were committed on federal property. Prosecutors, in an attempt to secure a death penalty, sought to admit evidence of aggravating factors during the penalty phase, like her conviction for the bomb threat. On March 26, 2001, the jury recommended life imprisonment. On March 27th, the judge sentenced Kristen Gilbert to four consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole, plus 20 years. She is incarcerated at FMC Carswell in Fort Worth, Texas. In July of 2003, she dropped her federal appeal for a new trial after the U.S. Supreme Court passed a ruling that would have allowed prosecutors to seek the death penalty upon retrial. I mean, they convicted her on no evidence. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm glad they got her. <laughs> well, something else that I I've learned watching that license to kill, a lot of them will go and have themselves committed. That way, they can start to build a insanity um, plea. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Charles Cullen was born to a working-class Irish Catholic family in West Orange, New Jersey. His father, Edward, was 56 when Charles was born and passed away on September 17, 1960, when Charles was only seven months old. Cullen was described by many as constantly bullied by schoolmates and his sister's boyfriends. When he was nine, he made his first suicide attempt by drinking a concoction he made from his chemistry set. Charles's mother, Florence Cullen, immigrated from England after the Second World War and died in a car crash on December 6, 1977 at the age of 55. This was during Charles' senior year of high school. Charles recalled her death as being devastating to him and angry that the hospital would not hand her body over for burial and cremated her instead. Charles dropped out of school and joined the United States Navy, serving on the submarine USS Woodrow Wilson. Colin rose to the rank of Petty Officer Second Class as part of a team that operated the Poseidon missiles of the ship. He had to undergo, he had to undergo and pass several rigorous psychological exams to be a member of this submarine crew. A year into his service, Colleen's leading petty officer found him seated at the missile controls, wearing a surgical mask, gloves, and scrubs, rather than his uniform. Colin never explained why he did this and just took his punishment and was reassigned to the supply ship USS Canopus. He attempted suicide after this and went in and out of the Navy ward. Oh, went in and out of the Navy's psychological ward until his medical discharge in 1984. He enrolled at the Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing in Montclair, New Jersey, and was elected president of his nursing class. He graduated in 1986 and started his first nursing job at the burn unit of St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston. During this period of his life, he met and married Adriana Baum. Their daughter, Shauna, was born later that year. Adriana became disturbed by Colin's unusual behavior and his cruelty toward their pet dogs. The first murders to which Colin later confessed occurred at St. Barnabas. He injected a lethal overdose into a patient on June 11, 1988. Colin admitted to killing several others during his time at St. Barnabas, including an AIDS patient with an injection of insulin. Colin left Barnabas in January of 1992 when authorities began an investigation into had contaminated some IV bags. That investigation determined that Colin was likely responsible, and it resulted in the deaths of dozens of patients. A month after leaving St. Barnabas, Colin received a job at the Warren Hospital in Phillipsburg, where he murdered three elderly women with the heart medication digoxin. Digoxin, I guess. Or digoxin. Digoxin. What sounds better? I don't know. I have no idea. Just go with it. And... Digoxin. There we go. His final victim claimed a, quote, sneaky male nurse, unquote, had injected her while she slept. But family members and health care providers dismissed her. The following year, Charles and his wife divorced, and he moved into the basement apartment in Phillipsburg, sharing custody of his daughter. 
Colin wanted to quit nursing and claim the court-ordered child support payments forced him to stay in it. In March of 93, Colin broke into a female co-worker's home while her and her son slept. He left without waking them up or injuring them. He began stalking women and several police reports were filed against him. Colin pled guilty to trespassing and received one year of probation. The day after his arrest, he made a suicide attempt, took two months off work, and was treated for depression in two psychiatric facilities, and attempted suicide twice more before the end of 1993. That September, a 91-year-old cancer patient reported Colin had come in her room and injected her with a needle. Colin was not her assigned nurse, and she died the next day. Her son protested her death was not natural, and Warren Hospital administered a polygraph test to Colin and several other nurses. Charles passed and continued to work at Warren Hospital until the following spring. Colin then started at the intensive care unit at Hunterdon Medical Facility in Flemington. He alleges he did not harm anyone during the first two years, but the hospital records for that time have been destroyed. Colin admitted to murdering five patients between January and September of 1996 with overdoses of digoxin. He then began work at Morristown Memorial Hospital, but was fired soon after for poor performance. While Colin was unemployed, he stopped making his child support payments. He checked himself into a psychiatric facility for a short time seeking treatment for depression. In February of 1988, Colin was hired by the Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Allentown, Pennsylvania. In the ward containing respirator-dependent patients, Colin killed at least one at this hospital, uh, which was blamed on another nurse. He was accused of administering drugs to patients at unscheduled times. He was caught entering a patient's room with syringes in hand and broke the patient's arm. He was caught entering a patient's room with syringes in hand and broke the patient's arm in the process of trying to inject them and was fired. Colin was employed at Easton Hospital in Easton, Pennsylvania from November 1998 to March 1999. On December 30, 1998, he murdered a patient with digoxin. A coroner's blood test showed lethal amounts of the drug, but an internal investigation did not definitely point to Colin as the murderer. In March of 1999, Colin took a job at the burn unit of Allentown's Lehigh Valley Hospital where he murdered one patient and attempted to murder another. He resigned after one month, then took a job in the cardiac care unit at St. Luke's in Bethlehem. During his three-year span there, Colin murdered five patients we know of and attempted to kill two more. On January 11, 2000, he attempted suicide by lighting a charcoal grill in his bathtub. Colin's neighbors smelled the smoke and called the fire department. Colin was taken to a psychiatric facility, but returned home the next day. At St. Luke's, a co-worker found vials of medication in a disposal bin. The drugs were not valuable or used by recreational drug users, so it was a very curious thing. An investigation led to discovering Colin had taken it. Staff struck up a deal with him that 
he could either be fired or resign and receive a neutral recommendation. He resigned and left in June of 2002. Seven co-workers at St. Luke's later alerted the Lehigh County District Attorney that Cullen had murdered patients. The investigation was dropped nine months later without looking into Cullen's past. In September of 2002, Cullen began work at the critical care unit of the Somerset Medical Center in Somerville, New Jersey. He dated a local woman, and his depression worsened. Cullen killed at least 13 patients and attempted to kill at least one by mid-2003, using digoxin, insulin, and epinephrine. On June 18, 2003, Cullen unsuccessfully killed Philip Greger, who was discharged and died six months later of natural causes. Because of certain modern-day systems, Somerset began to notice Colin was accessing the records of patients to which he was not assigned. Co-workers also reported seeing him in rooms of patients he was not assigned. The computerized drug dispensing machine showed that Colin was requesting medications that his patients were not prescribed. Some of these included many orders that Colin immediately canceled and many repetitive requests within minutes of each other. In July of 2003, the executive director of the New Jersey Poison Information and Education System warned Somerset officials that at least four specific overdoses might indicate that an employee was purposely killing patients. The hospital delayed contacting authorities until October. In that time, Colin killed at least five patients and attempted to kill a sixth. In October of 2003, following a patient's death of low blood sugar, the New Jersey State Police was alerted. State officials confronted the hospital about failing to report a non-fatal insulin overdose administered by Colin back in August. The police investigation began revealing past suspicions in patients' deaths, over nine hospitals in 16 years. Somerset fired Colin on Halloween of 2003 for lying on his job application. Fellow nurse Amy Lowren alerted police after becoming alarmed about Colin's records of accessing drugs and links to patients' deaths. Police surveilled Colin for several weeks until the investigation was over. They got Lowren to visit Colin after her shift while wearing a wire and were able to produce enough evidence for a probable cause to issue an arrest warrant. Colin was arrested on December 12, 2003 at a restaurant on one count of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. By December 14th, he had admitted to homicide detectives Dan Baldwin and Tim Braun that he had murdered Florian Gall and attempted to murder Jin Kyung Han, both patients at Somerset. Colin also confessed he had murdered as many as 40 patients over his 16-year career. In April of 2004, Charles Colin pled guilty in New Jersey to killing 13 patients and attempting to kill two others while employed at Somerset. As part of the plea agreement, he promised to cooperate with authorities as long as they didn't seek the death penalty. One month later, he pled guilty to the murder of three more patients in New Jersey. 
In November of 2004, he pled guilty in Allentown to killing six patients and attempting to kill three others. During this trial proceeding, Colin was restrained and gagged after repeatedly interrupting and taunting the judge. On March 2, 2006, Colin was sentenced to 11 life sentences in New Jersey and is not eligible for parole until 2403. He is currently being held at New Jersey State Prison. On March 10, 2006, Colin was brought for a sentence hearing at Lehigh County in front of Judge William H. Plott. He was bound and gagged after taunting this judge. Platt gave Colin an additional six life sentences. As part of his plea agreement, Colin worked to identify additional victims. Colin told detectives in 2003 he lived most of his life in a fog and had blacked out memories of killing most of his victims. He didn't know how many he had killed or why he had even chosen them. Colin stated his motivation to overdose patients was to spare them from going into cardiac or respiratory arrest or going under a code blue emergency. He wanted to end their suffering and prevent hospital personnel from dehumanizing them. It should be noted not all of Colin's victims were terminal, and some, like Gall, had been expected to recover. Nurse Lynn Tester described many of Colin's patients he knew of as, quote, people on the mend, unquote. During Colin's long nursing career, Numerous hospitals chose to fire him or ask for his resignation rather than get police involved. They also settled a high number of patient deaths in which families wanted to sue by paying out deals to keep things out of court. Amid amid a nationwide nurse shortage, background checks were not as extensive or conducted at all by many hospitals leading this five-time fired nurse whose working practices were dangerous and not up to standard, even without all the intentional murder thrown in. Another one of those ones where they just kept slipping through the cracks, and it ended up in costing lots and lots of lives. Archivists suspect that he might have killed up to 400 people. I think that one is also on the... um, License to Kill documentary. Problem is, is so many of them are so similar. Yeah. That they kind of all start to kind of run together after you watch. I've watched a season and a half. They um, do. They seem to have like a pattern to them and uh, a lot of reoccurring like themes and symptoms and stuff. Well, they all use the same medications epinephrine, insulin, um, digoxin. Pota- yeah, pot- potassium. You know, just they all seem to use the same things and they do it all the same way. Um, what actually stood out to me in that one was the patient seeing him inject her with something and then she got sick. I think they inv- they interviewed her family in the um, show. Um, and that actually reminded me of what's his face that I talked about a minute ago. Uh, Slughead. I don't know. What was his name? Swango? Swango. Um, one of one of the people they interviewed, the father kept saying, talking about how he would walk into his room and say, you're next. 
you're next. You're next. And the he was so freaked out. And then he died like two days later. Yeah. And yeah. Interesting, interesting things. And I would hope that like these cases are all mainly 80s, 90s, so 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah. I would hope that there's enough investigation now that they do background checks, but I don't know. Really, I picked these because the story's done. They're either dead or they've been in jail so long that nothing more is coming out. I probably stayed away from the ones for the past 10 years, but yeah. there's hundreds of them. But that's another reason why you need to be a good advocate for yourself and your family members when they're in the hospital. Yes. It's like when Eli was in the hospital, there was somebody with him 24 hours a day. Yeah. You know, because making sure that they knew that we were there when we were watching them. And another thing is, you know, when, when the family is there all the time, the staff knows how loved they are and they tend to give them a little bit more attention. I mean, that's just kind of how it works. Um, but that's why you got to have a good advocate on your side and be a good advocate for yourself in healthcare. Um, and report things. I'm, I'm telling you, man, if the hospital doesn't do anything about it, go to the freaking police because, that was the one thing that I got is that the hospitals don't want this stuff out. So they kind of ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really sad. Any large organization or business like colleges are doing, I mean, they're not dealing with deaths, but covering up so many things and ignoring Mm -hmm. it because they don't want to get in trouble. And yeah, we were talking about this. I think when we were digging into the smiley face killers that a lot of colleges didn't want, people to know that students of theirs had died because it would affect their registration and the tuition fees and things. Ohio State happened to be one of those. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, this digging into these was just so heart-wrenching, but then also fascinating at this fact how much these people were able to get away with and for how long and you know, you think of a serial killer, you think of Bundy, you think of Dahmer. You, I mean, these people, these people killed more than these. Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, they didn't kill that many people. When you look at how much these these angels this of death are, have, like, yeah. But then again, they're going for the weak. They're going mm-hmm. for the easy targets. Whereas you know, Dahmer and Bundy kind of had a little bit of work to do when they did theirs um but yeah i don't know fascinating terrifying terrifying all of that at once definitely get you in the spookiness for yeah this season doesn't it again again yeah. i'm telling you i am far more scared of real life hum- real life mm-hmm. humans living humans than i am dead humans yeah. any, any day of the week like <laughs> um yeah thank you dave for your research you're welcome I watched a lot of documentaries. That was my research. Like I said, in uh, three days, I watched a season and a half of that License to Kill. <laughs> really interesting stuff, though. Um, sometimes, some of them I watched over again because my app freaked out on me, and then it 
started replaying episodes. So I did watch a few episodes twice. I probably could have made it through uh, both seasons. (laughs) I was doing all this like reading and writing while Amy was home. And how many times did I just (laughs) exasperate? Oh, you got to be fucking kidding me. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like, Like after he goes in the patient's room, this calling guy. And is trying to give him an injection. And the guy fights him so hard that his arm gets broken in the process. Right? And the hospital's like, eh, we should probably just let you resign and write you a letter of recommendation for your next place. Yeah. (laughs) Just want you out of our hair. And then he sues and they're just like, oh, let's just give you some hush money to not say anything about this. Yeah. Crazy, 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 crazy. But I hope you're spooked out and ready for Halloween. I'm ready. It's getting closer. It's getting closer, closer, closer. Stay out of the hospitals. Yeah, don't go to the hospital. <laughs> um, no, I mean, there's plenty of good healthcare professionals out there. Yeah. I mean, these these are... I want to say few and far between, but there's a lot of them out there. Um, so just, again, be, just be a good advocate for yourself and your family. If you find yourself in a hospital, yeah, you know, be there as much as you can if you're with family and yeah, heck in the day of cell phones, might not be a bad idea to keep a recorder going at I all mean, times. Like nowadays, there's cameras everywhere. Yeah. So you don't got to worry about this stuff as much as you did back then. I mean, what ultimately got Colin was the computerized system. Yeah. Where they're like, why are you checking out these medications? Yeah. Why are you, why are you doing this? This is well, suspicious I mean, as most shit. Most hospitals now actually have like a department that controls mm-hmm. what drugs are given out and when. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you have, have they to have to go s- and sign they out. They have to scan the medication, scan the patient's arm. And all that stuff before they can administer yeah. anything. Well, then, like for the big drugs, it requires two nurses at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I know with Eli, they had to bring um. Oh. Um, really strong painkiller. Uh, Oxycontin. No. No. Stronger than that. Uh. uh L, I think. Lorazepam. Uh, fit, uh, fentanyl. Fentanyl. So, oh, yeah. fentanyl. Yeah. Well, when they come to do fentanyl, it requires two nurses. One nurse cannot be left alone with it because it's such a. It's so, so deadly. Potent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you milligrams is all you need, mm-hmm. and like that stuff was actually it's just crazy to see how how strong and uh, or how tight, it's hard, secure, how tight, secure, how tight. Fuck! I can't talk to that. I'm tired. How tight the security is yeah. for the drugs now. Yeah. Well, Back then it would just be in an you know a locked office and yeah, all and the it, nurses had keys to it and they could go grab what they needed come out and yeah, they really wouldn't notice anything unless like the supply was really low yeah. for some weird reason. Yeah, it'd be like the head nurse might be the only nurse that has the key but it'd be the head nurse on each shift. Yeah. And most of these were the head nurses on night shift. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Which is also one of the reasons why they get caught, because they would be the only ones that had access to the medications. Um, Yeah. Crazy, 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 crazy. So, next week, as Dave said, we're going to come at you with some gothic horror stories Mm -hmm. as we prep for Halloween. So close. So close. 
almost there. Um, don't forget to like us, follow us, all that fun stuff on Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. Um, also, be sure to go to our Facebook group and join our Facebook group so you can catch our Facebook Lives. We did three of them today. We are going to be doing one on Halloween night with our divination special. Um, I've been told that you have to have an account to leave a review on iTunes. Yes. But you don't have to have an account to leave a review on Podchaser. Ooh. So everybody go to Podchaser and leave us five stars. Yeah. Podchaser is slowly becoming like the IMDB of like podcasts. Yeah. I was zipping around on the air the other day and it had like fun facts and like bios and stuff of like podcasters and things and that's pretty cool. places you can leave like reviews and ratings and oh, that's pretty cool. last podcast on the left is going to be going back out to every other podcast thing out there not they're not going to be spotify only and i'm like yay that means i can go back to the ones that i like better than i although i've gotten to where i like I spotify say, I only use spotify anyway now. um i don't know i get used to whatever whichever one i'm using but yeah. Um, yeah. So, go like us, follow us, talk to us, hang out with us. Um, also, check out the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. We've got Smuts Up, Lux Occult, Faith Blind Council, Administrism, and Ad Hoc History. And also, don't forget your Parabox Monthly. Well, you'll get your monthly paranormal T-shirt sent straight to your door for nineteen ninety nine a month. You use the link in the description below and promo code paranormalcy at checkout and get 10% off of your order. And we're also affiliated with HalloweenCostumes.com and you've got until the 21st to get your costumes ordered. This is going to come out before the 21st. Uh, but by the 21st to get your costumes here by the 31st without paying, you know, a buttload extra for shipping. Um but use the link in the description of the show or on our face or on our um, website at umpnormalcy.com and we get a little kickback from that. Uh, they actually ship really fast regular. Yeah. I, I got our stuff in like two days and yours was like two or three days. Yeah. Um, so I mean they're pretty good and I mean heck some of us you know we keep Halloween stuff up year round so <laughs> It doesn't mean that you just have to use it for Halloween time. Um, they also, at Christmas time, they have some really cool gothic decorations and stuff like that, too. So it's a pretty awesome website. Um, I think that's it. Except for, you also go check out our brother and oh, sister podcast. Duh, Amy. <laughs> Grognostics. Primordia. And XV Planis, all great podcasts, all friends of the show, and hopefully we do some collabs with them all again soon. Uh-huh. Um, is that it? Am I forgetting? Any- Normally, we're done recording by now. It's now midnight. Um, so normally we're done by 10. We started yeah. at 10 tonight. Yeah, we so. started late tonight because we didn't get back from the cemeteries till late. But Yeah, we went on a field trip today. So, my brine, my brine. My bride might be a little bit bright. Um, yeah, words hard, Chad. I understand. Uh, I might as well end the show now before I completely just forget how to speak. So, until next time. Q.
Keep digging. Unearthing Paranormalcy is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog at tgmpodcastnetwork.com.